Well, I want to speak again to you a word of appreciation. I know uh, the hassle that it requires to get into this place. We continually marvel why people continue to worship here. Um, But we want to say to you, thank you um, for enduring the frustration and hanging in there. Um, But I'm glad you're here and you're going to be glad you're here because Jesus speaks the words of life to us. And that's what you'll receive today. Jesus is preaching to us the Beatitudes. Remember, Beatitude uh, comes from the Latin beati, which is Latin for blessed. And this is at the beginning of his ministry. And he sits down on a mountain. I want you to see the parallels that, that uh, uh, Matthew draws between Jesus and Moses. Just as Moses delivered the law from the mountain, so Jesus delivers the fulfillment of the law. From the mountain, just as the Ten Commandments, uh, the beginning of them loosely were about our relationship with God, and the second half were loosely about our relationship with each other. So, in the Beatitudes, uh, the beginning of them is our dependence on God, and the latter part of them is our ministry to uh, others because of that dependence on God. And in the Beatitudes, we have the fullest expression of what holiness is. Because it is not, holiness is not following a moral directive, not just following a moral directive. Holiness is the dependence upon the character of God in our lives. And that's why Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the hungers and thirst after righteousness. The more you realize you need God, the better off you are. Now, I want to remind you of the strangeness of this arithmetic here and the strangeness of this language. Today, we'll learn some things that, that, that uh, the, the characteristics that might make us uh, uh, afraid to even start this thing. Meek, uh, uh, or, or I mean merciful, um, pure in heart, peacemakers. I mean, this is, these are people who get arrows in the back. And Jesus is saying, you're going to be blessed because of this. Now, let me tell you why. There is, in all of this, an oddity of providence that says the very things you think will rob you will profit you. The very things you think will rob you will profit you when God is in it. I was listening to NPR this week, and they, had, uh, uh, they always have these nationwide, uh, this happened here, and, and uh, they told about a robbery. I can't remember what state it was in. But a man walks into a convenience store and he gathers up some goods and goes to the counter, and looks around and, and acts like he's going to pay, pulls out a $100 bill and hands it to the clerk and the clerk uh, checks the $100 bill and turns around to put it in the, the uh, big bill safety deal there and uh, turns around the guy pulled a gun on him and he says, I want all the money in the cash register. And so immediately the clerk complies, which is smart. Gives him all the money in the cash register. The guy rushes out, leaving all the goods there. In the cash register, there were $95. So just in that holdup alone, this, the store profited $5. It's the same dynamic when it comes to the sermon, when it comes to the sermon on the Mount. All of these things you think you're giving up. Well, no, it really is, in a strange way, it profits you. It profits you to be dependent on God. 
It profits you. And so let's take three more of these Beatitudes today. Let's listen to Jesus as he says to us, sitting in his posture of official rabbinic teaching, as he says to us, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, if you take this a little bit uh, more deeply than just the words, you would ask yourself, what does it, does it mean to have an attitude of mercy? What, what does it require to be merciful? And I believe to be merciful, it requires our absolute and total trust that we serve a merciful God and that God himself is merciful to us. It says in Luke chapter 6, be merciful even as your heavenly Father is merciful. Now I want to ask you a direct question today. Do you believe that God is merciful? Do you believe that God is merciful? Watch this. This is a little bit further extension of the question. Do you believe that God is merciful in everything? In every circumstance? The attitude of gratitude that is commanded by Scripture that says be thankful in all circumstances means that we recognize that in everything God is being merciful to us. Do you really believe that? Becky and I, Friday night, had uh, supper with uh, Josh and Lisa, my, my oldest one, and his wife. And, and uh, of course, in the Hunter household, the Hunter the man always says the prayer. And so Josh was praying the, the prayer before the meal. And he said something, I, I just, it just struck me, and I just remembered it. He said, God, we thank you not only for what you've given us, but for what you haven't given us. For in everything, there's a time and a season and everything into heaven. Let me ask you, are you thankful not only for what God's given you, but for what he hasn't given you? Do you recognize God's grace not only in what you have, but what you don't have? That's complete gratitude. And I ask you that for this reason. It will be terribly difficult for you to be merciful in every circumstance if you don't think God is merciful in every circumstance. It will be very difficult for us to convey an attitude of mercy when, when we think there's something lacking if we don't believe that God is in it, if there's something lacking. Not only that, but we need to recognize here that the mercy that they're talking about, the mercy that Jesus is talking about, there are a couple of Greek words for mercy, and there's one that's just kind of a, a, a passive word. I'm not, going to, I'm not going to repay evil for evil type. I'm not going to say what I could say. Now, I want to say that that passive kind of mercy is very valuable. Thank God he doesn't punish us for our sins when they're forgiven in Jesus Christ. Thank God we don't have to uh, expect absolute justice when we're in Jesus Christ. There is a wonderful quality to being passively merciful. And I might say to you that it's one of the best things you can do to hold your tongue in passivity when you could say something spiteful. To hold your tongue when you could say maybe something true and maybe something, some way that you think you could bring justice, but you let it 
pass. That's one of the best disciplines you can manage in your life. There are a lot of things that you could say, and they might be true, but you ought not to say. Because even though they're true, they will damage the relationship more than they're worth. They will not correct the situation. They will simply cause separation. There is a place in your life to let it pass. Let it pass. Let it pass. You don't need to correct every detail. You don't need to get in there, in, in there. Let it pass. That passive mercy is a very, very good thing. But this word is more an, of, of an active mercy. Because just as um, someone cannot be said to have a forgiving spirit unless they actually forgive, so too someone cannot be said to have a merciful spirit unless they perform acts of mercy. Unless there is an overt sign and evidence of that mercy. And this is what Jesus is talking about. You've got to do merciful things. Not only do we, in, as, as in Matthew 18, say, well, I need to be merciful because look at how much God forgave me. So I need to forgive others. Not only that, but we also go to Luke 10, where Jesus said, hmm, well, we just talked about loving others as you love yourself. What does that mean? Let me tell you a parable about the Good Samaritan and how to be a neighbor to people. And then he tells this neighbor, this, this, this example of three people, two of them religious and one of them a Samaritan. And the Samaritan's one that actually performs the act of mercy. And Jesus asks the obvious question at the end. And the obvious question is, who was a neighbor to this man? And the obvious answer is the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus says this to all of his listeners, go and do likewise. Jesus says, unless you are acting on your mercy, you're really not being merciful. Unless there's an overt show of mercy. This week, uh, Beck and I went to uh, the uh, dinner that Pat Morley's been putting on for 20 years now, I think. And they always have, every year they have a... Uh, kind of a citizenship award of people who have really added to the community. And this year, uh, very appropriately, I think, they uh, uh, gave it posthumously to Jim Gooding. Um, I did not know Jim very well. I've only spoken to him on a couple of occasions. But I see the difference that Jim Gooding has made in this community. Uh, and, and as they presented this award, uh, Mary Lou, his... Uh, um, gracious and, and uh, articulate wife, got up to accept the award. And she, very briefly, and this, I'm paraphrasing this, of course, said this, some men are called to mighty and extraordinary deeds and roles for God. But that wasn't Jim Gooding. Jim Gooding decided early on that his role was just to live life on a regular basis, and be sensitive to the needs around him. What a great role to answer the needs that cross your path. That's exactly what Jesus did. As he walked along, he answered the needs that crossed his path. That's what all of us can do. 
We don't need to be called in some great and mighty and public and national ministry. Just walk along and God will have needs cross your path. And as you show mercy, as you address those needs, you will have a tremendous impact over a long period of time wherever you go in the community in which you live. And so, Jesus would say, blessed are you who show mercy because you know what? Whatever you sow, you'll reap. It'll come back. It'll come back. And then to the next point, Mary Lou uh, also said, you know, I, I received this on behalf of Jim, but if Jim were here today, he'd be blessed by it, but he'd say, why did they give me this? And there's, a, there's, a, there's just a note in there that speaks to Jesus' next beatitude. It says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now let's go to the same place and let's say, what does it require to be pure in heart? And what it requires to be pure in heart, what it requires to be simple, is an absolute confidence that God has arranged the world like He has for a purpose. Not only that, but He's arranged your life for a purpose. What it takes is a confidence that this world is not happening by accident, that it's not out of hand, that not a sparrow falls to the ground without the Father's knowledge. And so you can be trusting and simple that in everything, God is there. I heard an evangelist this week say something very interesting, and I'll never forget this. I hope you don't either. He said, God never says, oops. I like that. God never says, oops. It isn't that the world is out of hand. It is that God is very involved in this world and things happen for a purpose. And so therefore, God can be seen in everything. Now, when you think this thing's out of hand and that evil is winning and that God's not in control, you will always have some sort of conspiratorial mentality. And you will always think it is foolish and naive to live simply. And you'll always try to be protecting of yourself in every circumstance. You know what that robs you of? That robs you of peace. That robs you of just doing the right thing because it's the right thing. That robs you of a sense of security. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart. Those who simply love out of a simplicity of faith. It says, for example, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, but the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. I, I, I tend to be suspicious by nature simply because I have such a healthy respect for original sin. I'm not surprised by any sin. But I wish that I could live more simply and more disarmingly, more disarmed. Let me give you an example. This week, um, <laughs> something happened that kind of surprised me. Um, my uh, son goes to a Christian school. He's a senior. 
And at the end of the year, they have this senior trip. It costs many hundreds of dollars, and not very many people can afford that out of pocket, so they give the kids lists of jobs that they can do, and if they do these jobs, the, the funds go right into the, the, uh, the, their, their account for the senior trip. And so the kids look over these things, see which, which one of these jobs they want to do. So Joel's looking over the list, and, and he decides he wants to, be, uh, uh, wants to sell programs at the Magic game. So his mother says, that's cool. They're kind of talking this over together. If you can get a parent to work for you, you get $25 a night. If you get a parent to work for you, you get 50 bucks a night in your, in your account. So Beck, without even the thought, said, I'll, I'll do it with you. And Joel goes, great. So I come home. This did not register until I get home from work Tuesday night. There's a note on the refrigerator. <laughs> Dad, Mom and I are selling programs at the Magic Game. Now, frankly, I'm trying to picture this. You try to picture your wife selling programs at the Magic Game. I, I'm thinking, well, maybe she's just back in the corner holding, you know, here, you want me, you know. Maybe it's, maybe it's kind of, no, she's up in the stands, up and down. Picture this, program, <laughs> program. Now, I'm standing in front of the refrigerator, and the first thing, my first thought is, not, now, not many people know what my wife looks like because she's not an upfront person. But those who do recognize my wife going up and down the arena selling programs are going to be thinking, poor hunters. They can't even, he's got his wife working the magic games for crying out loud. They must not even be able to put food on the table. I'm all worried about what people are going to think. Beck is home. I said, Beck, did you ever think of that? No, it never, never crossed my mind. She said, should I not do that? And I said, no, I should not do this. You're doing what's right. Your kid's doing something right. You're coming along. You're helping them out. You never give a second thought what people are going to think. That's the right thing to do. I'm the one that's all up in arms about what people, who cares what people, you're doing what's right. See, that's the pure, blessed are the pure in heart. Every time she sees our kids, she sees the grace of God. She's reminded of how good God is. That's the way to live. Be happy with the opportunities God gives you to love. You know, righteousness is simply meeting the demands of a relationship. That's the best biblical definition of righteousness, whether it be with God or with men. Meeting the demands of a relationship. When you know how to do it, meet them without thinking it through. Without thinking it through. You won't, you won't have the paralysis by analysis. You, you, many people just spend their whole, whole life trying to uh, uh, analyze every eventuality. What happens if I do this? What if I, it, it, like it's so complicated. You absolutely get immobilized with what other people could think. Who cares? Do what's right. And you'll see God. See God in every circumstance. Know that he didn't make him. God didn't say oops when he made the world like he did. God didn't say oops when the circumstances came up. God didn't say oops when he made you like he did. How many of you appreciate the way God's wired you? How many of you really are glad you think like you do? Now, I'm not talking about sin here. I'm, there's never an excuse for sin. But how many are saying, you know, God, you didn't say oops when you made me like I did. You did. I, I, there's a, there was a... I went in the middle of the week to a pastor's day at a Christian school. These are always kind of a stitch because the kids kind of do a little dealy for the pastors, you know, and every class gets up and does a little presentation for the pastors. And I love these. The kids are so cute. And this one, I think it was like a fourth grade, um, got up, and they had been um, studying fables, like Aesop's fables. And so each of them were supposed to, to make up their own fable. 
And, uh, and this one kid, and they had like four, four or five kids read their fables. And these were like good. This one kid gets up, and this was profound. I loved, I loved it, and, I'll, and I'm going to murder it because I'm, I'm, I'm trying to remember it. But let me just paraphrase it. It says, once upon a time, there was an antelope and a hippopotamus. And the hippopotamus uh, got out of the water one day and was looking at the antelope. And the antelope was all sleek and muscular and, and uh, pretty. And the hippopotamus kind of looked at herself. And she was kind of all fat and wrinkly. And, and uh, so, so the hippopotamus asked the antelope, how would you get to look like you do? And the antelope said, well, I eat a lot of grass and I run a lot. And Well, the hippopotamus looked at herself and said, well, maybe I ought to eat grass and start running. And so she did. She started eating. She, even though she hated grass, she ate a lot of grass and started running. She ate running. One day, a lion came out of the jungle. And the hippopotamus automatically went right back in the river. But the antelope had no place to go. The lion got the antelope. And the hippopotamus, watching from the river, said, maybe I'm not so bad like I am. <laughs> and the moral of the story is, be satisfied with how God made you. Now again, we're not excusing sin here. We're talking about, God, am I glad? Can I see in the way I'm wired your reasoning, your giftedness, you didn't say, oops, when you made me. Can I look at myself? Can I look at the world? Can I say this to myself? Everywhere I look, if I look long enough, I'm going to see God. I'm going to see God. That's the pure of heart. Blessed are the pure of heart. They shall see God. And look at this last one with me. It says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Now, let me go very quickly to an accurate theological point. You don't get to be a child of God by trying to make peace. There's only one way to be actually a child of God, and that's to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. God has made that provision. And so therefore, those who have trusted in Christ as their Savior become actual children of God, children of God, adopted sons and daughters of God, and co-heirs of life eternal. But there is a Hebrew idiom that says this, that eventually the children of God will take on the same characteristics as God. And that is the definition of holiness. We don't have holiness in ourselves, but as we acquire God's characteristics in our lives, then we have His holiness and we begin to resemble Him. And when people see us, they are reminded of Him. How many of you have had people come up to you that knew your family and they've said to you, you know, I never can, th I never can see you, but what I don't think of your dad. I never can see you, but what I don't think of your mom. What that means is you have the same characteristics. And so Jesus used to say this as, as, as a little bit further in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And so what we talk about when we talk about sons of God is not, this is not a salvation, this is not a remedy for salvation. This is those who are children of God begin to take on his characteristics. And one of the characteristics of God is to be a peacemaker. Now, 
The Greek word for peacemaker isn't quite as rich, or peace isn't quite as rich as the Hebrew word. The Hebrew word, many of you know, is shalom. And shalom is not just the absence of conflict. Shalom is the fullness and the wholeness and the health of, uh, of, uh, uh, of an individual and of a situation. Well, the Greek word used here, rene, is, is more limited in its sense, but it's, it's, it's a little bit more invasive in its sense also. Because it, it really is reminding us of the dynamic of what it was required on God's part to make peace in the world. First of all, remember that God is the initial peacemaker. That that's exactly what happened when God came down as a little baby. Remember, you remember the announcement from the heavenly host at the birth of the Christ child, at the incarnation? He, he said, they said, peace on earth, goodwill to men. And what that was, was God extending himself in the most vulnerable form, almost sure to be harmed in order that we might have peace. You remember exactly where that peace comes from. It comes from the cross. It comes from uh, Christ dying for us so that we could have peace with God. Romans 5.1 says, we know we have peace from God. We're justified by faith. But Romans 5.8 tells us how. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so God not only invades our life, but He brings peace by a sacrifice of, him, of, of His Son and ultimately of Himself. You remember in Ephesians, the wall of hostility and how Christ by His sacrifice breaks down that enmity. In Ephesians 2, and in Himself reconciles the two people to be one. And so, what's it going to take for us to bring peace? First thing it's going to take is to say, I'm not going to come out of this <laughs> unharmed. I'm not going to come out of this unscathed. I am going to have to be vulnerable if I'm going to be the peacemaker. There's no way to come out on top in this situation. No way God did, no way I can. And I'm going to go down as needy. Somebody in the congregation wrote me a Christmas parable this week, or wrote a Christmas parable, sent me a copy, Ed Musgrave. I like this story. It was about a story about a family who was so poor they couldn't buy gifts for one another. But they went to a prayer meeting at church Wednesday night, like they always did, and they had a presentation from, from this orphanage. And the kids in the orphanage were of such need, the family went home and they decided that night that they would do everything they could to get gifts for the kids in the orphanage. And so they went out knocking on doors in town, gathering materials, gathering old stuff, repairing old stuff, and finally took all of these gifts down to the orphanage right before Christmas. And one of the people in the orphanage said, who are you? And one of the little kids in the family said, ah, we're just the needy helping the needy, that's all. I like that. I don't know of any better definition of Christianity than that. We're the needy helping the needy. We haven't got it all together. We, we are, we're not sufficient in ourselves. We're not sharing from on high. We're the needy helping the needy when we help out. And that is exactly what God did in Christ. He wasn't judging from on high. He came down and became vulnerable. Now, this is the point 
of this beatitude. You will have this week conflict wherever you are. It's the character of the world. And you're going to be tempted to think this. You know, if I just land on the right side and we can win this battle, we could subdue the wrong side and then there'll be peace. Now, it doesn't work like that. You can never subdue the wrong side long enough to have permanent peace. You can never win in a conflict permanently enough to have permanent peace. The only way there is peace is what God did. When God came down, He never identified with the wrong, but He identified with the wrongdoers. And therefore, out of His love and respect for who they could be, He behaved out of kindness to them. Now watch. As you experience conflict this week, you're going to be tempted to land on one side. You're going, to, you're going to say to yourself, well, in order to take a stand, I've got to take a side. No, you don't. No, what you need to do is speak a word of kindness for the other side. Even though you don't believe what they're, what they're uh, uh, standing for, even though you may not think they're ever going to be right, you need to speak a word of kindness. You need to extend love to them. You need to understand, extend understanding to them. And when you do that, you will be like Christ was. You will be like Christ was. Christ never okayed sin, but he did everything he could to identify with sinners. And that's what a peacemaker is. I learned this from conversations with my brother-in-law, Jan. I used to, when, I, when I get with family, uh, I kind of just talk. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm a little bit more careful in public. When I get with family, I just talk. And I don't, I just, I just don't mean what I say, I just talk. And, and, and they know that. They know, he's not going to end up there, but he needs just to blow off the steam. So they understand that. So I was doing that with my brother-in-law, Jan, one time, and just really coming down on this particular person. And Jan said, now, wait a minute. I know what you mean. I know, I know why you're angry, but think of it from their angle. And I was incensed that he stopped. I mean, I was on a roll. I was doing good here. I was winning the debate, even though it was only with myself. But he stopped me, and I resented him stopping me. But he said, now think of it. If you were them, wouldn't you think the same thing? Wouldn't you do the same? Wouldn't you reach the same conclusion? Yeah. Well, it doesn't mean they're right. No, it doesn't. I just want you to think of it from their side. <sighs> okay. And then that happened about two or three more times. And it wasn't that I agreed with them. It was that I began to respect them. I began to understand them. What Jan was doing in that instance was being a peacemaker. He was extending himself, ready to incur my wrath in order to speak a word of understanding and respect for somebody he didn't even agree with. That's what Christ did. That's what you can do. That's what you can do. You're not going to come out unscathed. But speak a word of understanding and respect for the other side and eventually Surely, peace will happen. Happen eventually, because you were ready to be accused of being on the wrong side. You know how they accused Christ, don't you? Accused him of hanging around with sinners. 
accused him of being a wine bibber. This week, I'll close with this. This week, I was driving past uh, the uh, post time lounge uh, to uh, come to church. I always do. Looked up on the sign, wet t shirt contest. I'm going, oh, great. <laughs> so, walked into the office, you know, this, you know, the, the sign still on my mind, and, and, and walked past uh, the administrative uh, person here, and uh, she said, well, we had our first memorial service at Post Time Lounge. I said, what? And she said, yeah, this was really cool. She said, listen to this. The guy calls down, the head of the Post Time Lounge, whoever he is, says, hi, we're, we're your neighbors, the Post Time Lounge, and uh, our general manager was killed tragically in a motorcycle accident. Uh, can you send a pastor to come over and say a few words at the Post Time Lounge? And, and Kathy said, well... She said, actually, we have a pastor who rides a Harley. And, uh, and he said, great, send him over. So Gerald Jones, most of you know Gerald. Gerald never, never crossed his mind to be a Northland pastor to, and, and, and to hesitate walking into the post time lounge. Never. I mean, he just marched right, right down, marched in that bar. Here's everybody sitting around drinking. And he's going he's gonna, to he's gonna say a few words. And he went in and he just spoke the gospel. Now, he didn't know what he was going to get for that. But he, out of respect for them and out of respect for their need, not knowing where any of them went, went in and gave the good news of Christ. They applauded when he got done. I mean, literally, they didn't know. I mean, they're not church people. They just, yeah, right. He's one of the high spiritual points of his life. It never occurred to him not to go in a bar. Good for him. Good for him. That's where the church needs to be when it's called. It always needs to be in danger of being accused on the wrong side. Always needs to be in danger of being accused of being on the wrong side because they're loving like Christ. They're not sticking with the holy huddle. They're out respecting. They're out speaking a good word so that others might come to Christ. Well, all of this stuff doesn't make any sense, but it does. When you do it, it's not a matter of life being this huge, awful sacrifice. Because as you do this stuff that looks like you're going to get taken to the cleaners, you just see God's provision and how good He is and the work that He's doing. And you just get this joy because you're filled up with the Holy Spirit. And you say, I like this. Blessed are you when you're merciful. And when you look for God in every situation and when you extend yourself at the risk of yourself, to be kind and loving and respectful for the other side. Blessed are you. Pray with me. God, thanks that we can do this joyously, buoyantly. Thank you that we can be, have your holiness, have your extension to other people. Thank you, Lord God, that we can be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that we can do things that don't look profitable in the flesh, but they are profitable in the spirit. 
And thank you that we can do it together and have fun while we're doing it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.